Okay, has anybody in here ever seen the show Wipeout? Yeah. Okay, how many have not seen it? Man, what is wrong with your life? Um, YouTube it after this, not right now. Um, but it was one of my favorite shows um, back in the day. Um, so the basic premise of the show is that you just get hit really hard with things and the world laughs at you, right? So that's the premise of the show. Um, but I'll, I'll never forget, so the first round, um, you just have this like long platform and you walk across and there's balls flying that knock you off into mud and just you have to climb a wall at one point and, and it's just a disaster, right? And that's what makes it entertaining. Um, the second round was my favorite. So everyone started on one side and then you had this like maze of planks and stuff where you had to get to the other side. And if you got to the other side, you can make it to the final round. But the big tricky thing, it was all over a pool. And the big tricky thing about that round is that there was this like swinging pole <laughs> that would go around and it could knock you off at any moment. But it was always fascinating watching that round because it would start and everyone who was trying to get to the other side would like be shoving each other. They would just be focused on them. Like, I've got to get to the other side. I've got to accomplish my goal. I've got to get to the next round. So it was all about them and accomplishing what they had set out to accomplish. Now, it was always really cool and interesting that when the first person got to the other side, what do you think they did? They celebrated, right? They would have this triumphant joy, and then they would turn, right? They would turn to everybody else, and they would start helping them. They would start cheering them on, right? So they wouldn't just celebrate and then just turn their back and walk off, but they would turn and go, watch out for that pole. It's coming for you, right? Or step over here. They would start cheering on and encouraging the people who hadn't gotten over there yet. And that's interesting, right? It carries with it this idea that when you get the thing that you've wanted, when you've accomplished what you wanted to accomplish, there's almost a freedom to help, right? So as we talk about biblical community, the idea that we love each other, that we reflect the love of God, we will never get there until we realize what we have in Jesus, that he's already won the victory. He's already accomplished the goal. And so us as a community don't need to look out for me anymore, right? We have what we want, the greatest treasure in the world. And there is a freedom there to look to each other and go, what do you need, right? Watch out for that pole, <laughs> right? To serve one another because we don't need to earn anything anymore. Everything we've wanted, we already have. That's the idea behind biblical community. So as we jump into the text, I want us to look at two different stories or two different scriptures to start, right? First is in the beginning of creation and second is in the beginning of redemption. So let me read to you Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. What's really cool about this first, the first three verses of our Bible is that in the first three verses of our Bible, we see God in community with himself, right? That here there are three characters active in the creation of the world. God the Father, Spirit of God, and God's Word. That the Father is the creator, the initiator, the Spirit, whom, this is really cool, 
The only other time we see that word hovering is in Deuteronomy 32 when we get a picture of an eagle spreading its wings over its young to carry them. Isn't that cool? That's the protection and love that the Spirit has with creation. And then you've got the Word of God who is Jesus, the Son. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in the beginning of creation, think about this, there is community, right? There is mutual love there in the initiation of the world. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit create the world together. Now turn over to Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 9. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the, the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, son with you I am well pleased. This is really cool. So here, Mark is deliberately pointing back to the creation of the world. Just as the original creation of the world was a project, product of the triune God, so is the redemption of the world. That in both places you have the Trinity present. The, the rescue and renewal of all things as Jesus gets ready to launch his ministry and goes into baptism, the Trinity is present. That God is one. God is existent within... I'm, just side note, I'm not even going to attempt to give an analogy of the Trinity. Right? You've heard it, <laughs> and it's failed. Right? There is no analogy that explains the Trinity perfectly. So I'm not even going to attempt to do it. But in the Trinity, you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit working in harmony with each other. That each knows and loves the other unconditionally. So he's one, but he's three, but he's one, but he's three. Right? Makes sense? Cool. Um <laughs> So here in Mark, when Jesus was baptized, the Father envelops him, envelops him and covers him with the words of love. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well. Please, the Spirit covers him with power. Think about this. This is what's been happening inside the Trinity for all eternity. That they look at each other with love and encourage one another with power. There has been perfection forever. And they've loved one, each, one another mutually. C.S. Lewis, and some of you may have heard this before. Uh, C.S. Lewis, when he talks about the Trinity, he calls it a dance. You ever heard that before? He calls it a dance. He says, in Christianity, God is not a static thing, but rather a dyna dynamic thing. A pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama. And he says this, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, <laughs> a kind of dance. One of my old professors in seminary used to say it this way, um, and it's always stuck with me. He says, the persons within God exalt each other. They commune with each other and defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the other at the center of his being in constant movement of overture and acceptance. God's interior life overflows with regards for others. You're glorifying something when you find it beautiful for what it is, in itself, its beauty compels you to adore it, right? To have your imagination captured by it. 
And because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are giving glorifying love to one another, think about this, they're giving glorifying love to one another, God is infinitely happy. Think about that in the context of us. If they're giving glorifying love, consistent glorifying love to one another, He is eternally happy. And that matters to us. C.S. Lewis goes on and he, and he says, what does it all matter? Right? It matters more than anything else in the world. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this personal life is to be played out in each of us. So consider this. Do you have someone who you love? Yeah, probably. Hopefully. Right? Um, some of you are like, I want to love them. You know? Um, but... If you find someone you love, someone who you truly love, that you would do anything for, right? And then it hits you that they love you back. Does that make you happy? Yeah, it's infinitely happy, right? If you feel like your spouse or your daughter or son or parent or friend, that you've given them so much love and then you receive that back, it makes you infinitely happy. That's what God has been experiencing forever within himself. Now, what does this mean for us with the church? That is the relationship that God has invited us into. A relationship that encourages one another, where no one is more important than the other. It's a relationship full of beauty and acceptance. So consider the dance again. All right, let's just picture this as a dance floor, all right? Which would be really bad for me. Um, but let's say that you have 100 people in a room, okay? And I don't know if you've ever seen, like, maybe at prom or in the movies where there's like, they make the circle, and then you've got one person in the middle, right? And then it's really weird. Um, well, let's say that happened in this room, but all of us wanted to be in the middle. <laughs> would that be a disaster? Yeah, it, w- it would be pure chaos, right? A self-centered person wants to be the center with which everything revolves around. I might help people I might fall in love, I might give to the poor, but only to the extent that it's to my benefit, it makes me feel good, and it doesn't change my lifestyle, right? So many times we are tempted to think of the dance as something that's for me, something in which I am the benefactor. I don't have to do anything for you, but you revolve around me and the Trinity and this mutual love, we don't see self-centeredness, but we see self-giving. And here's the key. Through the blood of Jesus, we have not only been invited to experience the self-giving love, but we've been invited to partake in it with each other. That's really cool. And here's the really good news. No one can be invited, like you, you can't show up to the dance and buy a ticket, right? Like, hey, can I get to the Trinity dance? Like, that's, that's just not something that exists, right? You can't buy a ticket to the dance. He invites you into it, right? He invites you to partake in it. He shows up and says, hey, come here. And then the dance looks so good, right? Even if you're the worst dancer in the world, the dance looks so good that you can't help but dance because you've never seen something that good before. That's what happened, that's what happened in your heart when he saved you is that you saw something that was better than anything else, and you said, I want that. That looks incredible. That looks beautiful. That looks perfect. 
And here's the deal. Not only does he invite you in, but he qualifies you to be there. <laughs> Colossians 1.12. Paul's praying for uh, the, the church, uh, the Colossian church, and he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. He qualifies you to be at the dance, that God loves his church and he wants us to experience community with him. But, and here's the deal, we have to fully surrender to it. We have to fully to surrender to the dance, to the community of God. If you don't fully surrender to it, then you're not going to experience it. And you're going to get frustrated. Right? Um, I love, Jesus does this with his disciples in Mark 8, 27. Um, it says, Jesus went, to, went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, hey, who do people say that I am? He has a DTR with his boys, right? Um, he says, hey, when people talk about me, what do they say? And then um, they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one other prophets. Basically, they say, hey, Jesus, you're a really neat guy. Like, there's, there's something cool about you. But then he asked them, he says, who do you say that I am? And for the first time in the book of Mark, we have a real honest moment between Jesus and his disciples. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Now think about that statement. If you're Peter or one of the Jewish disciples sitting in that circle, we're assuming it's a circle, um, then for generations you have heard about a Messiah coming. When you sat at the Passover table, you heard about this Messiah that was coming to free you, right? Your parents would have talked about it. Your grandparents would have talked about it. Their, your great-grandparents would have talked about it. Everybody would have talked about the coming king, the coming Messiah, who out of Daniel 7 is going to ride with a cloud of fire, right? And Peter looks at Jesus and says, hey, I think you're that guy that my family has talked about, that we as a nation have talked about for generations. I think you're the guy, which is kind of a crazy statement. He essentially says, hey, I think that you're God. Now, he didn't understand the full context of what he was saying, but he said it, right? And that commitment that Peter gives Jesus changes their relationship. Because look what it says next, right? Verse 31, he says, and he began to teach them. He began to teach them. When Jesus talked about why he was there and the cross and suffering and all that stuff, before he would just use parables, right? Like I'm, like I'm a tree from a branch and I float, like something that just made no sense to them. They didn't understand why Jesus was there. But here it says he began to teach them. And there's a principle at play here that we can learn from. That with greater commitment comes greater intimacy. With greater commitment comes greater intimacy. Peter commits himself to Jesus by saying, hey, I think you're the Messiah. And Jesus then says, okay, you want to learn something? Here's more about me. So he says, uh, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Jesus gets intimate with him. He says, you want to know why I'm here? You've shown me the commitment. Now here's why, right? If we're going to be a people of God that fully experience community, then we have to fully surrender to him. The question for us is, are we really committed? Or is this just something extra that we do? Um, when I was a kid, um, I was like 10 or 12 years old, I wanted a pool because I grew up in South Texas in Cuero, home of the fighting gobblers. 
I should always like throw that in. Um, and yeah, we were turkeys. And so, um, but it was always super hot. I mean, it's hot here, but down there, man, it's just dirty hot, right? It's just sad. And, um, and I remember telling my mom one day, like, hey, can we get a pool? Which we, we weren't, didn't have a ton of money, so I thought it was a crazy request. But she looked at me, I remember she looked outside and she goes, yeah, get, let's get a pool. And so she goes, hey, call your friends. So I called like all two of them, right? And they showed up um, at my house and mom is at Wally World, which is what she called Walmart. Um, and so I, we're waiting for my mom to get home and I remember seeing her come down the driveway. We had this really long driveway with a cattle guard and she walks in and I'm, and I'm thinking, okay, there's gonna be a pool like strapped on the roof of the car, like this gigantic thing that's going to take hours to put together, but it's going to be worth it, right? Because my nephew had one, and it was really sweet, so I thought she was going to get one like that, but there was nothing strapped to the roof, so she walks in, and I'm like, where's the pool? She says, it's in the car. It's like, what? She says, go get the groceries. So me and my friends go out there, we get the groceries, and I open the trunk of the car, and it's basically this plastic basket, right? A kiddie pool, right? If you've ever seen a kiddie pool that you probably buy for your dogs, yeah, that's what my mom bought for us. And I'm thinking, this isn't what I expected. This isn't what I wanted. And so we got the plastic box, like the plastic basket out. We filled it up, and I sat in there, and my friends watched me, right? Because, because that's what you, there's no room. You can't all sit there in a kiddie pool. And here's what we've done with biblical community. We've said, God, I want you. I want to experience your community. But we've bought a kiddie pool. We've sat down in it and, ex- and expected to fully experience God. Does that make sense? That that's the level of commitment we've given. Is God, I want you, but you know what? I'm going to sit here in this kiddie pool. I've got a lot of stuff going on out there, and I kind of see you as worth this much. If we really want to experience him, you have to jump into the ocean. <laughs> that's how deep the knowledge of God is is. That's how deep the love of God is. If you want to fully surrender Him, you have to jump into the ocean. It's the only way. You can't halfway do it. A kiddie pool's not going to cut it. Right? And so many of us, we get so frustrated with the church or expect this from us and we get mad that they're not doing this. Part of it is just, you're just sitting in the kiddie pool. Just expecting God to do incredible things when your expectations for Him are very low. So if you want to fully experience him, maybe check and see what kind of pool you're in. <laughs> Are you in the kiddie pool or have you fully dove in to the things of God, who he is and what he's about? Right? Are you committed to pursue him and to surrender to him? Now, how does this play out with us, with the church, the church with the church? I've got three things here. Okay? Um, the first one is that we love one another because of what we just talked about. Because we are loved by God. Because he's invited us into this perfect dance, we love each other. First John 4, verse 7. It says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. When you see beloved here, if you have um, that translation, some of, you, some of your translation might say little ones. Um, when you see beloved, um, think loved ones. That's what that means. That John looks at him and he says, loved ones, love. That's the message. Loved ones, love. It's like saying 
hungry person eat, right? It's the most natural thing you can do. Um, I'm a diehard Astros fan, right? But if I show up to an Astros game with a Rangers jersey on, it's borderline evil, right? And it's heresy. So get me out of there, right? It's the most unnatural thing to do. The natural thing for me to do is to clap at orbit and raise my hands when the train goes by at Minute Maid Park because I'm a fan, right? Wearing orange is the most natural thing I can do. And here, John is saying, if you've said that you are loved by God, but you don't love us, if you don't love each other, then it's unnatural. It doesn't make any sense that if you... If you claim to know him, but you don't love the church, then you don't know him. Because, and he says, God is love. Now, that's not an active statement, right? That he's not saying God loves. He's saying, in God's essence, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit exist eternally love. God is love. That is everything that he is because it exists within the Trinity. Does that make sense? It's not something like God loves me. Like, no, God is love. It exists within him. Therefore, love. Because if you've experienced him, if you've experienced that love, if you've experienced that love, then the most natural thing to do is to love. Number two, he has killed the hostility between us. Ephesians 2, verses 12 through 16. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Here's a real interesting tidbit about Ephesians. 38 times in Ephesians we are told, in him. In him you have redemption. In him you have an inheritance. 38 times, right? The first half of, of Ephesians has one command, and it's here. And it's the command to remember. Basically, he lays out in the first two chapters the glory of God, how perfect he is, how good he is, what he has done, what he has accomplished in us. And only when this church understands that can he start commanding them. And the first command is to remember. <laughs> hey, remember that you were separated and remember that God has given you grace, right? And the second half, we are given 40 commands. Isn't that crazy? 40 commands. It's this idea that a new identity... A new identity creates a new activity. A new identity creates new activity. There was a time when each of us was separated from Christ. Right? And God brought us near. He brought us into the dance, and it was nothing that we did. Therefore, if it's nothing you did, the only way you can approach us is in humility. Because none of us deserve to be here. None of us were good enough can speak well enough, can sing well enough, can do this well enough, can do anything well enough in order to be here. He has invited us in. And so hostility, arrogance, pride has no place in a group of people that has been loved 
There's no place in a group of people that, can be, that, that are loved. The only way to approach us is in humility. The renewal of the state of our souls has killed it. It's absolutely killed it. Third thing, God has called us to fight for one another. He's called us to fight one another. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Whew, that was a lot of ones and a lot of alls, but it makes sense because we're talking about community, right? So here's the question. If I asked you, what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? What would you say? There's lots of different options. You could say theology, that if I'm going to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, I got to know God really well. I got to know his word. I got to know how he operates, right? I got to know Christology and eschatology and, and soteriology and, and all those things. I got to know him. While that's true, it's not what he says here. It could be social justice, that it is my job to go to the oppressed people of the world, the refugees, human trafficking, the orphans, the poor, and to serve them because that's what Jesus did. While that's true, it's not what he says here. You could say to be excited about Jesus, that when Katie sings or whoever's singing, I'm jumping up and down, raising my hands. I'm excited about Jesus. I want to tell everybody about Jesus. While that's true, it's not what he says here. You could say moral purity, which is typically the Baptist way, right? Don't drink that. Don't smoke that. Don't touch that, right? While that's true, I just want to make that clear. Um, while that's true, it's not what he says here. What does he say? He says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And here it is. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And what does he couple with that? Unity. Unity. That's how you do it. All the other things are good and we need to be doing those things. But if we're not doing it in unity, we don't really know him. We don't really know him. What's the pinnacle of spirituality? To live in unity in a community for the glory of Christ. We're launched out together for his mission. Why is that such a big deal? I think it's a big deal for us because we are really quick to tear down each other. Let me say it in a different way. We are really quick to talk bad about the church. Is it easier to tear something down or to build it up? Tear it down, right? Like if you give me a sledgehammer, I'm going to have a blast. If you tell me to build a house, I'm going to sit there with my hands in my head, right? Um, if I ask you to make a movie, or if I ask you to critique a movie, yeah, sure, you can do it. If I ask you to make one, we don't know. And when we think about the church, it's easier, easy for us to drive by that church and go, I can't believe they do that like that. It's easier for you to walk out of here and go, man, Colton's really not Matthew, right? Or it's easy, it's easy for you to say, can you believe they said that today? It's easier for you to go, I don't understand why we do this like that. It's just wrong. Like, like there are some things that are worth fighting for, but then there are some things where you're just being critical for the sake of being critical. Just because it's easy. It's easy to look at the church and point out all the black eyes. 
something that someone told me once, it's always been really encouraging me, um, because I was pastor on different staff as a church for seven years, and it's really easy for me to go, man, my pastor's an idiot, right? <laughs> like, but they're not. I'm just wrong, right? They, someone said to me one time, um, Jesus will always love the church more than you. He will always love the church more than you. It would make no sense for you to go, man, I love Colton. Like, he's funny. He's nice. He gets me, right? But Katie, I hate Katie. She is the worst, right? Would that just be weird if someone said that? When you say, or when you hear someone say, man, I just love Jesus, but I really don't like his church. That makes zero sense. Zero sense. Because he loves the church more than we could ever love the church. It's his bride. So be very careful when you critique the church, the people of God. Be very careful, right? Because he loves it. He cares about it. The question for us is, do we love each other that much? Do we love the church? Are we working to build up the church rather than just point out all the flaws and walk away? Are we really encouraging one another to be the best launch team, the best version of that renewal can be instead of just pointing out all the things that aren't ready, <laughs> right? All the flaws that we're, we're thinking that, that we haven't prepared for or that we're not thinking about. Are you spending time actually encouraging this group and building it up and encouraging Matthew? Because it's really easy to tear down. It's hard to build up. And then the last one, church with the world, right? Matthew five fourteen, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Here's what's cool about this verse, right? It's all a verse we've heard before. Jesus' Jesus's command to be a city on a hill is a communal command. It's a communal command. It's, it's to a group of people that we cannot be a city to our uh, a light to our city on our own. We are the city on the hill that beacons for them. The command is about being a biblical community that displays God to the world. Now, here's the interesting thing. It's possible to be obedient as individuals, yet be communally disobedient. I guess it's possible for you to say, I'll read my Bible, I'll do all these things. But, and so be obedient in your heart of, okay, I'm, I'm following God, but in the end, be disobedient. Because you're not doing it with a community, with a church that He loves. Right? And this time between the present age and the age to come, God is building a group of people, a city on a hill that had been recreated and renewed for the purposes of God, God's glory. And if that light is truly shining, it can't be hidden. Right? The world's going to see it because a group of people that actually love each other and encourage one each other never miss the mission. That if we really have jumped into the ocean and experienced him, you'll never miss the mission. You'll never go, why am I not making disciples? <laughs> why am I not reaching my city? Why do I not care about the unreached in the nations? If a group of people has actually dove into the ocean and experienced him, mission is natural. Does that make sense? That truth gives eternal value and purpose. So how renewal treats one another and experiences God together matters for the world.